This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. How are you doing today, Max? I'm good, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. I'm uh, in Naples, so exploring more and more Ooh. pizza every day. And, uh, <laughs> so that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously, I'm having a pizza every day now, so it's probably not good for my overall like weight and all that, but it's really enjoyable. So I'm really enjoying but that. How are delicious. you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Totally. You know, <laughs> I'm wishing I was in Naples enjoying fresh-made Naples pizza. Um, but other than that, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Uh, we have Charsing Ho, who's um, the head of NAMIC. And NAMIC is the Singaporean National Kind of Additive Manufacturing uh, Organization. And they've tried to, well, bring, make Singapore the home of 3D printing, the Silicon Valley of 3D printing, essentially. And they've done this in a very interesting way. We had Mahendra and Reddy on earlier to talk about this a while ago. He used to work there. He's now uh, somewhere else, but is uh, from an uh, from an alloys, but. Uh, Back then, we talked a little bit about Namek and all that as well, but now we're, we want a little bit of an update. And also, well, you know, there's a lot of places like Dubai and other places that are trying to be the 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 you know the kind of central headquarters of uh, 3D printing. But I think Singapore's approach is very interesting because it takes in a lot of research, for example, a lot of coordination with national bodies and national companies, and it's really like using additive kind of more as a f- you know, force multiplier rather than, I don't know, just throwing money at it, really. So I really like the approach. So so welcome to the show today. Thank you. Um, so so first off, I think, uh, first off, how did you get involved with 3D printing? Well, uh, it started really actually when I was uh, with HP, actually. So uh, we used to have uh, sort of skunk works going on, and um, that was in the early 2010. So, and... Uh, about 2015, I was uh, actually asked by uh, the Singapore government to to come in um, because they needed one someone to you know with industry perspective and experience to to figure out how to uh, you know better value capture the research outcomes um, because Singapore has been investing a lot in this space um, you know I would say over the last 15 years since uh, late 2010 or something like that. Um, so they wanted someone with without any baggage, uh, not someone from the public sector, to sort of have this outside-in perspective to see how to better coordinate all the um, the research centers. We have a lot of research centers with huge infrastructure, a lot of uh, you know papers, publications, citations, maybe a few patents here and there. But what the the government wants really is to see how this technology can really uplift um, our manufacturing sector as a whole. Um, whether it makes sense to sort of further invest. Um, They recognize that this potentially could be sort of one of those exponential technologies. Although, um, you know, at the time, I think when this office was started, uh, you know, there was still a lot of hype going on. In fact, we were at the sort of troughs of a disillusionment if you you look at the Gartner cycle. So, um, so yeah, so that that was how I started, actually. And um, it's been eight years since we started. Okay. And how exactly did you get into HP, though? Sorry, just were you straight out of college? You went into HP, and no, I was actually uh, my my training background is actually in semiconductor wafer manufacturing. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So that was like twenty years ago, and uh, and I spent fifteen years actually in the wafer fab uh, environment, and uh, and uh, my role at HP actually I was uh, recruited to to look after their supply chain manufacturing operations for one of their business units. Uh, and I was based in Singapore, but we have uh, distributed manufacturing uh, sites, both external and internal, um, in around the world. Uh, so we were very focused on. Uh, there are some elements of wafer manufacturing from my from my previous life in the semiconductor wafer industry, but mostly it's uh, more at the uh, system level. So HP does uh, products for PCs, for for printers. These are of course inject printers, not not the 3D printer at the time. When I was there, but it was already a thinking process when I was there to see how we can leverage the uh, the, pro- the intellectual property they have to you know to advance into the three D printing space, which of course they have done since 
since then. But then if you come from semiconductor with this high throughput, super high accuracy, you know, was it, did it feel very amateurish, this whole 3D printing thing in the beginning? Or? <laughs> yeah. Well, I won't say amateurish, but I, I, I actually had a bit of a shock when I, you know, to be honest, when I first uh, started or came in. And one of the first things I wanted, to, I wanted to do was really to sort of survey the landscape, right? What do we really have uh, sort of in Singapore? And, and not to, I would say not to many people's surprise, uh, you know, we didn't have much of an ecosystem uh, back then. That was 2015, I remember. So we, I, I actually went to a lot of these uh, very traditional manufacturing uh, organizations, companies with factories, and a lot of processes were not automated. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, the, the truth is, is that they, it, it did shock me a little bit that, you know, beyond, of course, outside of the semiconductor world, or maybe some of the biopharmaceutical companies that obviously Singapore has a lot as well. Uh, most of the manufacturing in the traditional world is still uh, not, uh, has not really progressed a lot, right? So, so this was, this actually became, uh, to me, a mission that, you know, we, we, I realized that there was a huge opportunity, right, for Singapore to actually think about how to apply uh, this technology, right, in a way that can best pivot these companies and sort of transform them um, to, to adopt. But the thing is, Singapore has done this before, right? With Semiconductor and a couple other industries, it has actually rolled out this plan of like, let's become the nexus of Singapore for, or Semiconductor for this area. And it actually has worked, right? So it's also like, this, that also must be putting on quite a pressure on you. Like if you try to do this in Denmark, people would be like, go for it. You know, <laughs> here's a million euros, go for it, you know? But you guys have actually like literally tried this a couple of times, right? Yeah, the, I would say that the the difference is that uh, for I mean for the semiconductor story, to be honest, this this was uh, very much driven by uh, the Singapore Economic Development Board, and it was during the time when I would say you know Singapore in in terms of the system uh, is a lot simpler. I mean, um, we used to have a, a chairman, uh, a guy called uh, Philip Yeo. I'm not sure you ever heard of him, but he he was the chairman of uh, Singapore. Uh, economic development board he was actually the architect to be honest uh behind this uh you know uh, building out the semiconductor industry and uh and and the strategies and all that so so back then there's a lot of these really national level initiative that's done uh you know with huge uh, massive investment um in a way um with a very holistic national plan um, but I would say in recent years, I would say in the last 10 years or so, uh, because of the fact that there's just so many of these, uh, you know, technological disruption cycles, um, it's no longer feasible for, you know, Singapore to put in, I would say, uh, taxpayers' funds just to, you know, to try to grow the industry uh, into, that, into that scale, right? Um, so, so it's different. I mean, the environment in the semiconductor world also was the fact that there was a... Um, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, progress and, and, you know, technological uh, evolution driven by Moore's law. And I think, I think globally there was a confluence of uh, various factors that everything was moving towards more digital. Um, and, uh, you know, wafers, I mean, semiconductors was uh, kind of a, you know, there was a very strong demand for, uh, because of computers and, and, you know, subsequently smartphones and, and then, you know, everything else comes in with IOTs. And so a lot of these all require uh, semiconductor chipsets. So uh, in, a, in, a, in a space of AM, I think that's where um, I don't see, we don't see much of that in a, in a kind of a, you know, from a demand generation perspective, it's less natural. It's, there's, there's still a lot of work to do when we try to apply AM in any of the verticals applications because of regulatory concerns or, or the processes are just not good enough. Um, you know, in some cases, but you must find the the setup of an AM system or an AM like factory or what have you uh, significantly simpler than the setup of a, a wafer creation. You know, of making yes. chips yes. since that is a huge infrastructure project, right? To like make yes. a, a plant of that style. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the wafer fab uh, process flow. I mean, I, I won't go into the details, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, for for every uh, you know, I would say let's say a 65 nanometer wafer that has to go through like 450 steps, um, you know, of repeated, uh, you know, film deposition, patterning uh, in an etching way, the, you know, to define the features 
sort of transistors and then building on the interconnects. So, um, and of course, with the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the kind of feature dimension we're talking about in a nanoscale level. So, uh, you know, defect density and the environment becomes very critical. So um, in the AM space, I guess, uh, you know, AM started more like a prototyping technology. So it's always been kind of decoupled from uh, what I call mainstream manufacturing. So I think that's something that, you know, was very clear to me. Like we, we're not, this technology is not really plugged in right into the sort of mainstream traditional manufacturing is such as subtractive or even, um, you know, the injection molding type of processes. Does it have an advantage given your limited space in Singapore, to, you know, to allow you to create facilities that can do manufacturing um, on a smaller scale, if you are a smaller footprint, I should say, not necessarily scale. Or yeah, it's, think a, it's, it's not a, quite there yet. No, I would say, uh, yeah, real estate in Singapore is uh, definitely a premium, right? So, and that's also the reason why, uh, you know, in the early days, we, 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 you know, focus a lot on these high value added manufacturing. So there is a kind of a metric that we sort of use, uh, you know, so for every employee or headcount, you know, the type of industries that we look at would be those that can generate the highest revenue, right, per, per headcount. And that's why semiconductors uh, was was kind of adopted, or rather, uh, the government actually looked at it in a big way. Um, um, and of course, footprint in terms of uh, you know factories at the end is relative, right? It's all all about the the revenue per capita kind of metric that we look at. Um, I think additive manufacturing, in its uh, in, you know, I would say on its in its own form, and I, I think you guys know this also pretty well is. There is a potential for us to, for Singapore to use this technology or help companies to adopt so that they can look at more uh, sort of higher value added activities. And what I mean by that is uh, because of the limited footprint, we can't uh, basically manufacture at scale for a lot of these traditional products uh, and, and not, you know, not lose money, right? So a lot of the high volume stuff, we actually have sort of over time uh, moved it to overseas countries and such as Malaysia, which is just uh, north of us, and even to China. Um, but with this technology itself, we think there is a potential for Singapore to retain uh, some of these manufacturing activities, which is very critical, actually, for, for innovation. And this is something that Singapore, uh, and just like any developed country, including the United States, is also looking at, right? Without any manufacturing infrastructure, it's very hard to innovate because we, we live in the physical world, not, not in a you know, metaverse. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that digitization, because everybody's saying that digitization is a giant trend. It's been ongoing for decades now. But the need to have that physical infrastructure and that uh, ability to generate physical parts, I think is really crucial. I think I remember uh, I was walking around actually Hong Kong, and I remember seeing there's this whole, these whole neighborhoods in Hong Kong, but they have all these little machine shops, and they have like you know a block of only fish tanks, or a block of only drills, or a block of only la uh, lathes, you know? And then I, I went to this other like side of Hong Kong, with TST and all this, where it's, it's only real estate and luxury shopping. And it's like, okay, guys, what are we going to do? You know, where are the next jobs and innovation going to come from? And Hong Kong was a place that, you know, came in the Korean War from nothing because they started producing low-cost toys and plastic flowers and stuff. And they ended up becoming advanced manufacturing. They ended up ditching that. Do you think that's, that's a real worry for, for, for kind of a yeah, place like Hong Kong or Singapore, places like that? Sorry, Joe, just to correct you, they, they didn't ditch it. It all moved over the border into China and all those people yeah. that made the flowers and toys made a, sh a lot of money creating <laughs> new factories over the border in mainland China. Yeah, and they bought 7-Elevens. Yeah, but, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are 14,000 7-Elevens <laughs> in Hong Kong and there are 14,000 Circle Ks. It's insane. One of the plastic flower dudes owns half of them. Yeah, I know, I know. And then, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, 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 uh, but, no, but, but the, but the sorry. point is okay. the, the, the point, right? Point's the same. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I think I think the the Hong Kong comparison is uh you know is something that we we you know we've went through it you know I mean a lot of countries like to compare Singapore to Hong Kong because you know we're kind of similar in size although I would say they are bigger uh, and also the difference like you just mentioned they have the sort of the hinterland with China so. Um, and I think in some ways, it's also the role of Hong Kong, right? It's a kind of the proxy for uh, international, 
financial hub, right? That represents China in that sense. Anything they can't do in China or parts of China that it's not possible, then you can potentially do it in Hong Kong. So uh, for Singapore, we don't have that, right? We we have, of course, uh, we have our neighboring countries, the ASEAN countries, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, you know, Philippines and Indonesia and so on and so forth. But they all are at a very different state of uh, in terms of development, right? A lot of them are still considered developing countries, maybe with the exception of Malaysia and maybe Thailand. And to some extent, even Indonesia has been coming up the curve quite rapidly. So it's very clear to us that we have to uh, retain manufacturing as a very critical part of our uh, gross domestic product um, because it leads on to other multiply effects to the service industry, uh, to other, I call it high value added, uh, you know, you know, industries, right? Beyond um, just manufacturing itself. And it's something not lost on the, on the Singapore government. That's why over the years, we started in the 60s with textile manufacturing and then we pivot to hot disk drive manufacturing. And then after that, we moved to semiconductors then biopharmaceuticals. So the latest now is really to look at these whole uh, sort of huge, uh, you know, small, medium enterprise base that we have which does a lot of component manufacturing. They are usually the second tier suppliers to uh, some of these satellite manufacturing hubs, you know, uh, started by US-based companies that comes here. They set up a headquarters here, so they have some sort of manufacturing hub or satellite hubs. Um, so, but given the fact, like I said, the, the cost is always, uh, you know, it's been a challenge, right? So with the real estate and, and, and of course the talent shortage and manpower costs, so we need to now think about how to then move in a, you know, maybe uh, move up the value chain, if I may, right, to help these companies start to look at perhaps, uh, uh, you know, pivoting into more like an OEM company or a product company like Apple, for example, um, so that, you know, you can retain IP in, in, in this country and may, maybe do some of the, the innovation stuff, research development, maybe some small volume, high mix type of uh, manufacturing, but the rest of it, you can you can do it where it makes sense economically and and skill wise. So that's the kind of uh, you know the the thinking process for us, and that's why uh, it's beyond not just additive manufacturing uh, for us, but it's also about automation, about robotics, about even artificial intelligence. I think there is an intersection, uh, in my view, between these uh, three domains. Uh, uh, you know, for for the future uh, in advanced manufacturing. I think it's an interesting point because you said before these disruption cycles are quicker, right? So you can't, as a country, invest like $2 billion in building a fab. But the cool thing about the fab is that no one's going to move the fab once they build it, right? And, and if you have the infrastructure that worked really well for Taiwan, then they keep building more fabs, right? Uh, but on the other hand, if the cycles are quicker, you can invest that kind of money. But, if, but the, theoretically, these technologies like AI, softwareization, robotics and 3d printing well these technologies are, are also kind of anti-fragile or they're kind of more resilient or they're more kind of programmable if you will is that also like a calculation where you're saying well okay maybe it's going to be cars but if it doesn't work cars we'll just retool the factory to make uh headphones and then we can do headphones is, it, is that also something that you guys have thought about because that's really trendy right now but for, I, I can imagine that you guys thought about this much earlier yeah, I think I think you 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 kind of uh you know made a very good observation actually the uh you know for this kind of investments like you know not to go into a semiconductor uh, discussion but uh you know wafer fabs in general you're right it's very huge uh, investment but you know you you can literally as long as you continue to innovate on the process uh you continue to target the right uh, sort of application segment um uh, what we term as value added as opposed to chasing more slow right um, or going after the next uh cutting edge uh, process technology node. I think the fab can sustain for, for a really long time. Uh, but I think the other point is the, uh, the investment, the amount of investment, so, uh, and also the scale of these investments, right? So uh, the truth is that I think the thinking process now, also given the geopolitical situation and the size of the limitation that we have, we're no longer thinking about huge factories, right? We're thinking more like micro factories. And by micro doesn't mean that it's really, really tiny, right? But, but the point is, uh, you know, what sort of scale can Singapore afford to do that makes economic sense? You know, the company won't get, you know, bankrupt themselves by trying to, to compete, right, with, with the, let's say, the Chinese. Obviously, they're number one in the world in manufacturing or even the Malaysians. 
So this is really trying to find that uh, sweet spot uh, that we play in. And we think the the value of a technology like AM does uh, can perhaps be an enabler for that because uh, I think a lot of people miss the point that additive manufacturing actually is a digital technology. So what it means is we uh, do a lot of the iteration at the design level, digital level, and then you can then uh, materialize them relatively fast, right? If you you know apply the right uh, additive manufacturing process. Um, so, so that changes the entire, uh, sort of, uh, shifts the entire focus of the activity, right. To more design focus, more, you know, into modeling, more into simulation and very much less, I would say in the actual making of the parts or products actually, but certain products because of the strategic reason and also for resiliency for supply chain, we obviously want to have the capability to do that. And I think additive manufacturing does, uh, you know, provide that capability in, in some cases. Not all, but I would say in most cases, if we, if we develop it right, I think can be done. I think, and it's also interesting that, that since you guys have started this NAMIC as a project, the world has become much more fragile, much more competitive. Um, we were talking, I was interviewing Fried van Kran yesterday, I've materialized, and he was saying that actually it's more difficult to make a cloud software now than it was to make like Wintel software years ago because mm-hmm. now everyone has a different cloud and then there's a China cloud and, and it's all different regulations and stuff like that. And then at the same time, we have all these geopolitical differences. Now people are making you pick if you're friends with the Americans or the Chinese. I can imagine that for a relatively small but still very wealthy and innovative country like like Singapore, which is like you know super based on trade and everybody getting along, that this is an especially kind of maybe even a weird time Right, because you guys can't pick sides, right? So you don't want to pick sides. Um, you just want everybody to get along, essentially. <laughs> and 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 uh, you know, d- does three D printing also help you insulate yourself and say, hey, we could make our own things if push comes to shove, that kind of thing? Is that really uh, you know featuring into your decisions now? Yeah, it does. In fact, uh, I remember years ago when we were expounding this concept of you know, we were told to okay, our mission was lower the barriers for entry, right? Or adoption barriers for, for companies to, to, you know, to, to take on or build capabilities in additive manufacturing. But the way we were thinking back then was, is this is not just about our technology players, about what is the strategic value of this technology in the long run, right? Because if we can, even if we help companies to sort of uh, address some of these uh, value chain uh, positioning, uh, you know, sort of uh, intent, but at the end of the day, it, it doesn't have the stickiness, right? In terms of at the as an as an at the national level, something else will come in and you know displays it very naturally. So we were t- trying to explain to our stakeholders that hey, you know, we're thinking more along the line of you know digital manufacturing, uh, the fact that you could uh, move digital assets as opposed to moving physical stuff. Of course, it's not for everything, but you know for most of the stuff that we think may be critical, we can try to develop the relevant AM processes to, to build these kind of stuff. And when COVID hit us, and I think COVID hit the world, uh, it, it turned out to be kind of true, right? Because we, you know, it's not just Singapore, but I think we saw for ourselves how uh, the global community was able to actually share a lot of these digital designs and files and assets and and you know we could ramp up print farms literally overnight, right? As opposed to trying to imagine trying to build a factory, a traditional factory with tooling and and all the you know fixtures that we need to create just to create a, a product. Uh, it would never be able, you know, we would never be able to to sort of produce some of these stuff that we were able to produce with three D printing. So, so I think this is something that uh, um, I think the um, the COVID itself provided this uh, sort of opportunity in a way, in a bad way, but it did actually convince uh, the government that hey, there is some value proposition of this. And given the fact that you just mentioned correctly as well, we we actually import mo- almost all of our a lot of our stuff, food, uh, goods, and everything. So now the thinking uh, is, what can we do to support maybe twenty percent or or do twenty to thirty percent of the food production or the uh, some of these commodities that we used to actually just import without thinking, and additive manufacturing it can be a solution, but you know it's something that we're trying to work on. One of the other verticals I, I may want to bring in is the like uh, construction industry, for example. So uh, I'm not sure you're aware, but Singapore, because of our labor shortage, so we we have a lot of these uh, foreign labors. 
to help us in uh, building houses, building stuff, you know, repairing roads and things like that. When COVID hit us, uh, one of the, the basically the construction industry shut down, right? And one of the reasons for that, of course, beyond the fact that the workers were not able to work, was the fact that a lot of the prefab units were actually produced in Malaysia. Uh, these are prefabricated volumetric, uh, you know, modules that we actually bring to Singapore. A lot of our uh, building uh, landscape is actually a high-rise building, so so it's kind of repeatable. So it makes sense to sort of do it in a factory and then sort of ship it in and you sort of stack it up in on-site. And that whole thing shut down because we just couldn't we couldn't uh, bring in these uh, prefab units for two years. So now the government is thinking differently, even though uh, you know built built environment is still technology is still uh, I would say nascent because there's still a lack of uh, maybe standards and maybe uh, still a lack of uh, field data right to prove out three uh, D printed buildings can actually do work, especially in high rise uh, application. But it's now something that we are actually uh, pushing very hard actually. Um, so I was actually in the U.S. Uh, to uh, visit my, Mighty Buildings uh, a few months ago, and I was very impressed with what they actually have been able to create. And there's other examples, Icon, uh, you know, Cobalt from, from Denmark, and, and a few others. Are you aware of anyone making a, a, an actual high-rise? I mean, I know of three, two-story buildings, but I'm curious if you've seen anyone no, attempting. No, we, we don't, we don't okay. have it, but this is where, this is where Singapore, uh, you know, um, you know, we, we have started actually looking at it to be right. Very, right, without divulging too much. But there is no, something no. Uh, we are doing that uh, is part of this work stream that we are uh, tasked to do is to uh, support and help a statutory board. We have a statutory board called Housing Development Board or HDB. So they are responsible for 85% of the housing in Singapore. These are, these are public housings, of course, subsidized by the government. 85% of the Singaporeans that live in public housing. So, and uh, so the, the, this uh, organization, HDB, they're, they're tasked, they're looking at it actually seriously. And they've been investing in quite a bit of uh, activities and resources to, to really realize this, uh, you know, 3D printed high rise building eventually. More for the prefabricated uh, process rather than to say okay you go on site and 3d print a, a high-rise building that's probably not not going to happen in, uh, no no uh, yeah I, I get that it's baby steps <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> so to speak uh, especially when we're talking about people's lives right a building yes. has to contain a human being in it so that's right but that's, that's singapore though it also seems since there have been all these forays into different texts and stuff like that that there's probably a very interesting base of people to draw on in singapore that could use 3D printing technology or additive manufacturing technology in ways that are not necessarily the traditional, you know, since there are bio printers and there are all these other different printers. Have you guys started looking at kind of picking up some of those people from the previous initiatives and showing them that they could achieve them potentially more easily with 3D printing? Yeah, absolutely. I think medical, the medical community, I mean, uh, took us a long time, but uh, again, also because of COVID, um, I would say the hospitals, the clinicians are uh, actually very, very uh, enamored with this technology, right? So the question, of course, is how do you scale something like this? So, you know, from a traditional uh, sort of uh, source from, you know, the likes of the Strikers and the Johnson & Johnson type of uh, what we call patient mesh uh, implant devices to, uh, you know, designing uh personal implants that is very specific to the patients. So how do you actually, you know, go through that workflow in a very repeatable fashion and making sure that the, the product, of course, the outcome is safe for use. And this is something that we are working very closely now with, um, with our hospitals and clinical community. As part of that work, we obviously, as you pointed out about talent, is that we don't have everything in Singapore. So one of the things uh, in our job is actually also to scour the world uh, for the best technology companies or solution companies. So in this respect, uh, we have actually uh, brought in a company called Printer Press or Zeta. It's called Zeta now. Um, and they actually have, are partnering with us uh, together with the hospitals in Singapore to, to advance uh, these uh, patient-specific implants. And we are doing some of the uh, projects and development into some of these, uh, um, for example, cranioplasty applications uh, for 
for one or two of the hospitals right now. Yeah, what I, what I like about what, what Jada is doing and other people are doing is like that that's hard. That's really hard, and people will trust. Like the thing is, if I give you a, if I tell you, like I can give you a cheaper knee implant, well, maybe you don't care, right? Maybe you don't want, or maybe your surgeon is like, forget it. I, I don't want you. She'll be like, I don't want a cheaper one. I just want it to work over time. So I love that as a business that it's growing. People are getting older, have higher expectations, uh, live longer. So I think that's an absolutely fantastic business to bet on this this, uh, this implant business. Yeah, you're you're right. I think the um, you know Zeta's value proposition, and or rather their ambition in this space, is actually to uh, to create actually a low low cost solutions, right? Low cost or affordable solutions for patients, and also to minimize a lot of these uh, repeated surgeries that be, just because the you know the traditional way of doing surgeries is not not perfect, right? I mean from the point about you know your pre-surgical operation planning uh, where you could potentially use uh, 3d printed anatomical models you know uh, and it's interesting for you and me for you know we are very much a uh, you know familiar in the, the technology space we think okay I mean 3d printed model that's not interesting right but actually to the clinicians is very valuable because they can t- they told us they can take these uh, physical model 3d model to explain to these uh you know surgical teams and explain to them explain to the patients explain to the patient's family what is going to happen and in some cases they actually do the uh, actual sort of pre-surgery sort of uh you know ops on on this models right so that actually enhances the the, the probability of success and um so i i would say zeta is uh yeah you know we actually look around the world to be honest we, we only found one company and it was actually uh, you know in fremont right in the u.s and we were very fortunate that they were willing to come to Singapore. They have established a, a, a team, a, a, a quite a sizable team now. And they intend to basically grow this uh, medical business uh, using Singapore as a center for Asia Pacific. I love the fact as well, and you definitely guys lifted that. Look at countries like Vietnam and Indonesia. Indonesia, which is absolutely gigantic, right? And the whole population and everything. And look at just these people growing wealthier all the time as they manufacture more things, as they, they, they go up the value chain as well. And just look at how many of those people will live longer and be wealthier and now be able to afford like a knee implant or, or uh, a hip cup and all these things that they previously couldn't. You know, so that just is a hugely exploding market. You're absolutely right. I think it's not just the aging itself, but generally the Asian uh, community, and this includes Singapore. We we are not uh, we, we don't usually do implants, you know, like orthopedic implants, unless you're you know you have a really bad accident and you do you know cut off a bone or something, and you have to you know do bone grafts and all that. But generally, I think uh, it's just not in the culture of the Asian. Uh, community to say, okay, I, I got a knee problem. I think it's due for replacement. So let's uh, put in a titanium, uh, you know, sort of a knee joint replacement, right? So, but that is going to change because of the, uh, I would say, the growing awareness. And I think, uh, you know, the point about uh, being more cost effective is also very, very key. And and the patient outcomes is, uh, is at least for in the in the clinical conditions from the hospital's perspective is also very, very important. So if, if we can create a something that is very patient specific, um, you know, solution for the patients, and and it can you know extend the the patient's uh, active lifespan, I think that's that's fantastic. Yeah, I really like it as well because, like, for example, uh, there's another company like we've seen people try to take on Invisalign directly, like Smile Direct, trying to take them on in the U.S. And, and actually, Invisalign is quite a formidable company, actually. They're, and I love, like, for example, two things that I think one is, well, Singapore-based is Zenium, right? And Zenium is essentially kind of a similar kind of play, but it's really, well, for some reason, they also sell electric toothbrushes, which I still don't understand. But it's also a similar play, but it's really directed at Singapore itself, and then by extension, uh, wider Asia and neighbors. And I love that. And I also love another company, which is Star 3D, which is like, I know them because I they used to never have a website because they didn't care because because everything was on wechat and stuff because they were just doing a full dental solution but only for dentists in china and if you look at these kind of regional plays i think you know a lot of people just say oh no we're going to conquer the world and i think this regional play stuff is really can be really valuable look at all the people in in china now all of a sudden who are going to want 
kind of like American level teeth, if you will, uh, or the amount of people in, in Singapore who really would invest in their smiles and stuff. And we're just looking at that is just a huge market itself. I think this regional stuff is really kind of, you know, underappreciated, I think. Yeah, I think the you, you I think the aligner solution, you're right. The you know, there's no, no way I think we can out you know, Xenium or even uh, you know, Star Treaty, who is trying to get into the dental space can um, you know, sort of match the the scale, right, of some of these existing giants, right, like Align Technology. And even China, they have their own version of Align Technology. Uh, what we try to do also uh, is to uh, think about applications using 3D printing that can uh, make an impact and sort of improve lives, right? So uh, th- there's this company uh, is a, actually came out from the university uh, called Osteopore. Um, and what they do is basically they have developed a 3D printed bioscaffold product, um, which is bioresolvable, which means that the product actually gets absorbed into the body over time. And because of the nature of the uh, microstructure that enabled by 3D printing, um, it actually allows uh, tissue uh, regeneration, right? So this bony tissue regeneration. So in short, if you have a hole in the skull, they you know literally can uh, print a very uh, specific uh, implant for you, a plug, right? 3D plug. Put it in, and basically over time, uh, your bone tissue uh, will regrow back to the to fill up the hole, and uh, that implant basically disappears. And this is very very important because uh, in a lot of cases that we have seen, I've seen a lot of uh, some of these clinical um, things uh, cases that have gone really wrong is um, the traditional metal based type of implants and solutions actually doesn't really work very well. Uh, so having this kind of regenerative uh, type of uh, what I call products that could help your body to kind of regenerate, uh, you know, those kind of things are are something that we 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 try to you know s- position ourselves right to, to 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 be differentiated. And I think up to five years ago, I think Ostapol was the only company in the world that could do this. They are FDA approved, also C certified. Um, and I think in the region, they also, uh, you know, recently they got the approval as well from Vietnam and also from, I think, uh, uh, Thailand as well. So they're trying to scale this uh, in, across the market. But beyond that, I think it's really the holy grail, right? Like even for space manufacturing, uh, you know, space actually is something that uh, on a personal level, I, I'm, I have, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, I my ambition actually was become an astronaut, but obviously... You know, growing up in Singapore is uh, the, the, the probably is like literally uh, less than zero, I would say. And um, so right now, Singapore is actually looking at how to uh, play our part, right, in in the in the next frontier, which is uh, space exploration. And of course, at this juncture, we don't have a rocket company and all that, but you know, we're trying to uh, you know maximize leverage, more focus on some of these satellites um, development. Which obviously 3D printer actually plays a big role. We we have a startup uh, right now. Uh, it's called uh, Eliana. So they do uh, electric propulsion systems for some of these microsets or nanosets, and a lot of the parts in there, right, with in their in their, in their proprietary electric propulsion systems are actually 3D printed ceramics because they told us there's no other way to to do it, right, with the traditional uh, manufacturing method. So. So these are the kind of uh, sort of application approach. And this is what I think in some ways the organization that we have today, NAMIC, is doing. It's really to, to find those applications and try to spread, um, to de-risk, I would say, some of these entry into these applications. And of course, over time, hopefully we can find uh, one or two really high potential ones to, to help them scale and grow. The, the other problem is like in the space business, I've evaluated this for clients and people I work with and friends and stuff, it's just such a money game. They get so much money and, and they blow so much money that it'd be good to have a rocket startup in your country just like for just all the money they spend on everything else. But it's just a really difficult game to be to have any kind of meaningful impact in there. You know, because yeah. they just like the some of these guys are blowing like a million dollars a day in some cases and it's just it's astounding. But I, I like for example like in space manufacturing. You know, like like made in space, try to do some stuff like that. There's like, I like those kind of things because that's you know potentially we can make better semiconductors or heart cells in space. And I think you know that just requires a really small device that could go into somebody else's rocket and somebody else's rack, and then uh, you know, and then they'll give all the big money. You'll just rent it from them. You know, 
you're one of these magical clients these guys are building all this infrastructure for. So I like in-space manufacturing and, and manufacturing satellites a ton, you know, as, you know, there's, there's so many wait times there. And, and yeah, the in-space manufacturing, I think, could really, really be a big thing if it works, right? Yeah. Certain things like maybe tissue, I would say tissue engineering or, you know, organoids uh, applications in, a, you know, in bioprinting, for example. I mean, in the microgravity environment like we would expect in space, I think it's better because you don't worry about, you know, uh, especially when you're trying to print these uh, soft tissues and or uh, the Holy Grail right now is trying to figure out how to do vasculars tissues, blood vessels. Um, and you know, without without the gravity, uh, you don't have to worry about support structures. Of course, you can do this in hydrogels, and you know, um, but the reality is that if we could not say grow an organ bank or farm in in space, but that could be one one thought process that would say we can leverage um, and and of course utilize the the lack of gravity in space. Um, Singapore does have ambition to see you know to kind of play in a in a I would say in a in a very uh, uh, supplementary role um, uh, and uh, we do think that uh, you know of course maybe it's not for the next five to ten years but you know we, we given the, the the state of our uh, you know the size and and it's important for us to diversify right so so that's an ambition to grow a space agency to develop a space agency in fact there is a, a organization called Austin they're a bit like us, right? They they are trying to grow the space industry just like we're trying to grow the AM industry. But there's a lot of intersection. So we we we, we you know the, the good thing about Singapore being small as well is that we we have a lot of these very close knitted kind of a public ecosystem and private ecosystem. So you know things get done, I would say relatively easier, uh, maybe compared to a bigger country. I mean, we can literally stitch together a cluster. Now we have eight entities across all the universities and uh, a star where we are hosted and even polytechnics and we're able to galvanize uh, all the you know the infrastructure public infrastructure together with our research performance to look into some of these more industry relevant problems where additive manufacturing may be able to play a, a very pivotal role also i think you mentioned the research thing and i think that's the one thing that really sets you apart from other countries like I, we, we talked to denmark before people from doing the dansk am hub i think they're doing a great job you know everybody knows that 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 Abu Dhabi, Dubai are countries that have done similar things before by kind of you know doing the regulatory thing right and and and, and coughing up a lot of money. But you guys are really integrating this this research uh, thing into actually becoming a center for three D printing as well. Is that are you doing that in a top down way? Are you telling people like you should research this thing, or are you doing it kind of in a way like get money for doing this thing, or are you really letting the researchers determine what the interesting areas are to, to go into? Yeah, I would I would say there are two levels, right? So I would say at the uh, the government policy level, um, we have a this five year roadmap, uh, which we uh, we have a term for it. This is a research innovation enterprise roadmap. So it's a five year map. It's like you know how the the Chinese government do their planning for their economic uh, you know sort of a blueprint, and every five years we will uh, decide. You know this is decided at the national uh, level what domains that should we look at right so for example in the in this current five years since 2021 to 2025 uh, we're looking at uh, investing in technologies and applications in manufacturing trade and connectivity and this is where additive manufacturing is sort of parked in so at that set of policy level so there is a top down sort of a very policy level thing to say okay we need to invest in artificial intelligence we need to invest in additive manufacturing, but given the state of the technology, uh, the way we do these things are different, right? Some is more lower TRL, uh, technology readiness level. Some is a little bit midstream. Uh, some is actually more high, higher TRL. So so different approaches, uh, also depending on where the technologies, we have different strategies. Um, at our level, uh, we don't, uh, we actually coordinate research. We don't necessarily dictate uh, the topics and all that, but we do tell our research community based on what we see, based on what we uh, understand from our global partners, colleagues, and uh, community, we think this is the direction, right? So, for example, if they want to, say, study some 3D printed, some uh, specific, uh, say, tungsten-based alloys, we will tell them, yeah, you know, this is the right direction because 
you know, these kind of alloys are high temperature, you know, we can have potential applications in, let's say, uh, nuclear fusion reactors, which is a form of clean energy, is the holy grail for clean energy, things like that. So we, we are part of that process where we will, in some ways, uh, uh, guide and, you know, maybe in some cases even mandate, you know, uh, sometimes, of course, we don't, we do tell them, hey, maybe don't go down this pathway, right, because it doesn't make sense or, People have already done this. There's no really real value capture opportunities for us. I was just, are you guys ever either encouraging outside entities to come in and set up an office, as you'd mentioned previously, or in some cases, just like purchasing companies or, or you know, acquiring entities to help help build more of that infrastructure? We encourage or is that. Not your own role. <laughs> no, we, we encourage. I think I think we we recognize we're not uh, we're not a domain expert to, in everything, and I think that's the truth because things are moving so fast uh, these days. And uh, so what uh, what we do actually we do uh, scout. I call it scouting. In fact, I I think Jarvis knows this. I, I you know do travel quite a lot, and and the reason why I do that is because I I'm on the constant lookout for. Uh, very good companies, good organizations that, you know, in our space. Uh, Zeta was one example. We have uh, other examples like Hyperganic. Uh, Hyperganic's in Singapore because of, you know, uh, similar things we did, uh, just like how we did it with Zeta. Um, Molly Works, uh, you know, the recycling metal scrap company was the same thing. So um, the truth is, I think beyond the, um, you know, of course, we're, we're trying to see how to, create this next generation of companies, right? And to, 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 to do that, you need a lot of uh, knowledge, right? That I wouldn't say we, we have it. I mean, we may have a lot of research knowledge, but I would say my observation is a lot of the real uh, application at the frontier of applications of, of some of these uh, exponential technologies, I would say it's mostly in the U.S., and maybe China to some extent, but U.S. because you know it's a little bit more familiar with us because of the you know the, a lot of the the systems and the the norms and the practices, the standards are very uh, you know more aligned to how we we think and how we see things. So uh, so we tend to be more uh, sort of focused on on companies from the Western Western uh, West uh, Western sphere. That's very interesting, and and another thing, by the way, I think I think that you guys have been really really interested in. That other people have shown less interested in this whole food thing and food printing. You guys are interested in it way before other people. And now there was a boom and millions and millions of dollars in investing. Is that uniquely Singapore? Because you you also import a lot of food, right? Is that uniquely you were like, oh wow, that's that's super relevant for us? Or yeah, this was a this was an existential thing that you know hit us when we you know when COVID struck us, right? So we realized that we were so dependent on other countries for uh, everything, right? For for chickens, for eggs, for fish. I mean, we do some fishing, but it's not enough um, to to feed the population. So, and we internalized that there's also the whole sustainability angle out there, and I think, I think this is also one value proposition that additive manufacturing brings and it's also something I, I believe in personally. Um, so, uh, so yeah, cellular agriculture, culture meats, uh, you know, non-livestock agriculture, whichever term you're familiar with, this is definitely something that we want to uh, play a role. And if you notice uh, a lot of the companies, we have our own startups here, like Umami Bioworks and even Shokmeat. Um, and, but uh, the truth is that the, the ones that are leading the space right now is, uh, in, in, in Israel, actually, Israel uh, with uh, stakeholders food, Aleph Farm, and even actually in the in Netherlands, we know there is a company called Meetables, right? It's just that we didn't uh, we didn't know them before the Global AM Summit, but you know I would have tried to bring them in if not if not if we can do it next year. Um, so yeah, cellular agriculture is a very interesting space because it also intersects uh, with this whole three uh, D printing process, right? You know, you're you're printing cells and you can do it at the sort of not say factory level, but you can actually produce food uh, in a sort of controlled fashion that you can control quality, you can control the um, what you put in as well. Maybe in some, you know, theoretically speaking, you can even uh, you know customize it in such a way that it uh, lessens some of the side effects of some of these uh, you know red meat stuff, right? So you know, so a lot of more. I call it uh, bioengineering, right, of the food that we eat. Um, so these are some of the things that we 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 
truly believe is the future. Of course, right now it seems like science fiction, but uh, if people sort of think back to history, um, you know, for a lot of these technology um, disruption cycles that has happened, I would say generally we tend to, um, you know, overestimate the short term, but underestimate the long term, right? So, um, so a lot of things like computers, you know, back then, 80s, 70s, it was unthinkable that today everybody will have three or four computers with, you know, on your, on your body and some of them as small as a palm. And, and and what do you hope to, to achieve for Singapore? What do you hope Singapore achieves in additive manufacturing? If you look at the next couple of years, next five years or so, where do you hope to be? Do you, do you want to be the, the world center or do you want to deploy the technologies more? What, what are your goals? Uh, well, we, 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 we don't want to be the world center, but uh, I think given the, um, you know, the country where we are, what we are, actually, we, we do need to be relevant uh, and we need to stay relevant. So uh, therefore, I think, uh, you know, given the fact that we are no longer like in the 1970s, where we're still a developing nation, we're kind of a wealthy country, as you mentioned. So, so we we have to keep pushing the frontiers. We have to, you know, in some ways, be bold in looking at some of these uh, new areas of um, um, technology or or you know innovation or things that maybe f- from our most commoners might say this is not possible, right? But but I would say you know with the right bets, I would say, maybe it's a, you can say is a portfolio approach. Uh, some of it is very strategic in the sense that if you don't do it, if we don't do it, then it, it is a it becomes an existential problem. So that's a no choice thing. But other things would be more uh, positioning for us to be to be continue to be relevant. And I think very importantly is the connectivity. Right, I think Singapore's value to the world is the connectivity. Um, of course, the governance, the transparency, and everything else, but it's really the connectivity in terms of our uh, ge- geographical uh, location. So, uh, but you know, something that we will continue to uh, progress, and I would say, uh, I mean, every country has to find its relevance in in this uh, you know sort of new world, right? So, you know, we we, we do what we can. Okay, super cool. Anyway, thank you so much for being on the three D Pod today. Thank you, Joris and Max. All right. And yeah, thank you guys for listening very much. And uh, we hope you have a wonderful weekend as well or a wonderful day wherever you are. And uh, have a great day. This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue.